0: Hi, it's Alex Last here from Marant. I'm back here with Richard Perris. Hello. Hi there. This is our next episode of uh, the Private Capital podcast series. We've had some fantastic conversations so far with private practice lawyers. This time, we're heading into the GC arena.
1: That is right. This time, we're talking with Maurice Beanie, who is General Counsel of Blackstone Credit, formerly known as GSO. Uh, Marisa is a very influential figure in the in the GC community, so it was great to catch up with her again. She's been in the role at Blackstone for around 12 years, so we've seen a lot of change during that time, from GSO as a as a five billion hedge fund uh, all the way up to Blackstone targeting one trillion of AUM this year. So she had some great perspectives on all of that, which we certainly discuss. Yeah, we cover a variety of topics here, including the uh, Blackstone holiday video, which I know a lot of people listening huge fans of, so we get a bit of the inside track on that. Excellent stuff. Looking forward to it. Okay, here we go. I'm here with Marisa Beanie. Marisa, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, speak with me.
0: No problem. Great. Glad to be here.
1: It's been a big year for Blackstone. Big AUM growth. I think one of the crowning achievements, though, was Reese Witherspoon appearing in the (laughs) holiday video, (laughs) which I I did re-watch as part of my preparation for this, looking into Blackstone. I think they're pretty good, those videos. Yeah, do you agree? They, uh,
0: <laughs> I, I agree. I, I personally think that they're a lot of fun and I, I send them out to my, my family so that they think that I work at a fun place. But yeah, yeah, I thought that they were very entertaining.
1: My question about the video is, now that they're actually successful, do you have internal competition <laughs> to get like a speaking part in the video Is that a thing that people seek to do?
0: Not to my knowledge, or maybe I'm so out of the loop that I'm not aware of of who's in charge of that. So,
1: um, and I need to get into that. John (laughs) Finley's in it every single year. He
0: does a really good job too. Like I really wouldn't have expected that he would have strong acting skills, but yeah, he's good. I have to say, I am not a good actor. We used to have our own videos um, back in the days when we were GSO and we would do holiday videos which I think was a little bit of the spark of what you know inspired the firm to do videos as well. I, I have to say, my performances were, were not stellar. But
1: <laughs> but come on, you can manage that. I want to see you in 2022.
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll see what I can do.
1: See what you can do. But that video was actually based on fact, right? There was a BXTV.
0: There is still a BXC TV, yeah. And I have to say, it's been a great tool. I mean, we're making fun of it, but it's um, every Monday morning. um, We have a global meeting started initially because of pandemic to keep ourselves connected. But it has been a a great culture carrier tool so that and and I look forward to it. I like to go in and and see what deals people are doing, you know, just hear what people have to say. And it's also useful. There's a lot of announcements about how things are happening, return to work. So yeah, it's been great.
1: Incredible. That was introduced during the pandemic
0: introduced during the pandemic, and I mean, it really is a production, I, I mean, kudos to the team that does it. I mean, they've now, they have these little tools where somebody makes a jokes, and there's like a ba bump you know, a little button that somebody <laughs> plays, there's, you know, all kinds of just like those, rate. you, you could probably take a couple tips.
1: Exactly. Did you hear that? <laughs> I've got one, I've got one here. <laughs> Do I, I won't be using it during the podcast, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And presumably they get external writers in to do the the holiday video, right?
0: They have to. Yeah,
1: I mean, because it's too good to like, I can't yeah. imagine that, you know, I mean, sure, John Gray is a great guy, but I can't imagine he <laughs> writes that all himself. Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so holiday video side, let's get to you. So you joined a hedge fund called GSO in 2007, right? Having been at Latham, I think before, was it Latham before yep, that? Yeah, I
0: started at Latham. And I spent a little bit at DLA Piper as well.
1: So you joined a hedge fund called GSO. I think they had about 20 billion or so under management at that time.
0: Mm, it was like 5 billion.
1: 5 billion? Really? Yeah. It was that low? I th- yeah. wow. That's uh okay. So you jo- you joined a relatively <laughs> sort of mid sized small hedge fund in 2007. You're now part of Blackstone, which is zeroing in on a trillion dollars of AUM this year we hear, which is amazing. A year after you joined Blackstone bought GSO. So you've sort of been sitting in the same seat, I guess theoretically all this time, but I can't imagine it felt like the same job. What were the biggest changes that happened during that time from your perspective?
0: Yeah, it has been a crazy ride. I remember when I, when I was thinking about joining, because I have a, you know, a finance background. I was a project finance attorney, and I knew the people who spun out of Credit Suisse and, and started GSO. And I got connected with the then GC George Fan to join you know, this, quote, hedge fund. I didn't even know what a hedge fund was. I remember having to Google hedge fund to see what it was and I don't think I really understood it. So I didn't really know what I was getting into but I knew the people and I knew that they were really smart, interesting people and also just excellent at what they did. When we started, I have to say I don't know that George really knew what he was getting into either. I don't I don't know that, you know, people who are these entrepreneurs like they're sort of like, I'll figure it out. I, you know, I I can make it work. I know finance, and I know that I can hire people who understand the operations, the compliance, all of that stuff. So when we started, there was one other attorney, but um, that attorney left shortly. So it was it was basically just me and George at the outset, and he was the GC at the time. You know, we didn't really have a compliance department. You know, George and I were the compliance department. We were the legal and compliance team. Um, and I this say, was
1: pre-global financial crisis and Dodd-Frank and all that, right? Yes, so, yeah. exactly.
0: Yeah, so compliance really wasn't a thing, I think, back at hedge funds like that at, at that point in time. I mean, we had a compliance program and, and we did kind of the basic things, but the focus on compliance was really quite different at, at that point in time. And I, I remember people coming in you know, to my office and asking things that were compliance type questions and me thinking, I guess that's my job, I mean, as between anyone else in this firm, and it's got to fall on me, so we had to figure it out. Joining at that point in time, in some ways terrifying, but also really interesting and exciting. I mean, we didn't have a real trade blotter at that point in time. You know, it was a piece of paper where people wrote down the trades that they executed on the phone, and at the end of the day, somebody would initial it. And the way you checked against the restricted list was there was an Excel spreadsheet and you would look at what was on the Excel spreadsheet and what was on the trade blotter and see whether or not there was something that matched. Like it was all very, I mean, it couldn't be more manual. And I remember, you know, working with our technology team to come up with a system that, you know, would track the NDAs and the names that we were taking information on. So we were part of that discussion of, you know, creating the operations that, in fact, are still in place today.
1: Yeah. Is that what you thought you'd be doing, or did you think, oh, I'm a project finance lawyer, so I'm going to be doing the transactions?
0: Yeah, I was brought in to work on transactions. So I was going to work with the deal teams to execute transactions. And I think I did that for like one deal. At some point in time, it was just clear that there were so many other legal and compliance related activities that needed attention that I really didn't work on transactions other than at a very high level, which I think is probably appropriate. I mean, it's nice to have an execution type attorney to come in and and do that part of the work that probably could be done by an attorney rather than deal team members. But there's so much else that happens in the firm. And it is very operationally driven that requires somebody who's, who's willing to dig in on the compliance requirements and the fund requirements on all of the other things that need to be monitored that really, you know, I started doing alongside George.
1: For me, it was always the hardest piece to fill how the in-house team interacts with the transactional side of the business. And it's kind of ironic. Most people who join private equity or private credit M&A or transaction-focused lawyers, they expect to be doing that again. But actually, they end up realizing that really, that's just a tiny part of all of the stuff that you really should be doing. And you end up stepping away from it most of the time.
0: I think the natural inclination is to you know want to do that because that's what you know. But I think the real value add comes with. Truly understanding the, the compliance aspect of it. Hopefully, like quote compliance is not you know your entire job, but you really need to understand the transactions to understand like what are the compliance and the regulatory implications to you know what's happening here.
1: So you joined in two thousand and seven, thinking you're going to be a transaction lawyer. You end up doing NDA spreadsheets. Twelve 12- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. twelve months later, another surprise. Yeah, I assume was it was it a surprise actually, or was it was your being hired part of the plan? Like when GSO were going to be.
0: No, in fact, it was a surprise. and uh, shortly after I was I was hired, I remember we did a transaction with Merrill Lynch where they took a minority um, interest in, in the firm. And so Blackstone wasn't even oh. on the spectrum at that point in time. And I remember thinking, wow, that's a, that's a really big change for me to you know happen like shortly after I joined, you know three or four months after I joined, like we do this, you know they're selling a, an ownership stake to Merrill Lynch only to be outdone by, you know, the, the, the future transaction. So, so then, like six months after that, we started engaging with Blackstone. So Blackstone came in, bought whatever remaining stake with GSO had, plus the Merrill Lynch stake. So it was a complete surprise that we had two significant strategic transactions happening within a year.
1: So what was that like, sort of backing into Blackstone and becoming part of this? I mean, even back then, Blackstone was a pretty big deal, right? So presumably, you know, there's a whole legal and compliance function there already. And how did that integration go?
0: Blackstone was probably like other private equity firms, you know, they had really one attorney. I mean, probably, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe three or four attorneys who were doing Mm -hmm. legal and compliance for all of Blackstone. So it was also thinly staffed.
1: Finley staffed actually. Well, uh, yeah.
0: actually, no, it was not Finley staffed then. Oh no! Of course, it was, it was the Friedman pre- well, staff. Friedman, that's
1: it. Yes, yeah, sorry, I forget. Yeah, that's um, right. it
0: was Finley staffed, and then it became Finley staffed. Right. Yeah. They were able to take over some of the very basic compliance functions, like trade monitoring, that sort of thing. But there wasn't a full program in place, like monitoring conflicts of interest, all of that stuff. We really figured out as we as we went. We planned for it because we knew that we were going to be making debt investments in Blackstone portfolio companies. So those were actually some of the things that we negotiated when we sought consent from our investors, because their consent was required in order for Blackstone to take over the GSO investment advisors. The devil's always in the details. So we kind of broadly knew what we were going to do, but we, we really had to, to figure out all of the mechanics as we went. You know, we learned along the way, We started building out our compliance program alongside Blackstone, as Blackstone really started developing after the financial crisis, people were much more focused on legal and compliance. I mean, when you think about the fact that Blackstone had probably five attorneys in 2008 doing all of legal compliance, and now we have, you know, well over 100. So it's just night and day.
1: And what's that split between legal and compliance these days? How many are sort of out and out lawyers and how many are compliance focused?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd be guessing, but I would say it's about 50-50 when I just oh, really? look at what it is within uh, Blackstone Credit. You know, all of the attorneys who are, quote, legal, compliance is still a big part of their job. They're just, I would say, inextricably intertwined. There's no, there's no way to separate all of that stuff out.
1: So those 100 people, how how is the team divided in terms of, you obviously have a dedicated credit team and a dedicated GC for credit. Is that the case for all the other business lines, or are they arranged in a slightly different way?
0: Yeah, so Blackstone has been moving to a centralized model over the past few years. Every business division is a little bit different, but most of the groups have a dedicated general counsel and also a dedicated chief compliance officer. But we work closely together. We meet weekly. I spend many hours just interacting with them and, and making sure that we're all being consistent where we can. Consistent where we're similar, but you know, having uh, the ability to modify policies and procedures where the differences in our businesses, it makes sense for us to have a different approach. So I work very closely alongside Tula, who's our, our chief compliance officer in, within credit, who is dedicated to credit, who you know works really closely with me. She also works very closely with Marshall, who is the chief compliance officer of Blackstone as a whole.
1: And also appeared in the holiday video this year. I noticed yes, it was and good to see alongside he John. He
0: also has strong uh, acting skills, but yeah, for some reason it. that doesn't surprise me. I expected <laughs> him to. Yeah.
1: Yeah, very talented guy. Do legal and compliance report into you and then you report to John Finley as the chief legal officer, or, or is there a separate reporting line for compliance? That-
0: yeah, I would say that our reporting lines, they are a little bit confusing because we have a lot of dotted lines. So Tula reports into Marshall, he is, you know, her supervisor, but she probably spends more time with me. And so she has a dotted line into me. Similarly, I report into John Finley, but I probably spend more time with Dwight. So I also have a dotted line into him, Dwight, the president of of credit.
1: And when you said you were were seeking a more centralized approach, where are the areas where you're finding it's a you're able to sort of coordinate and make everything the same? Is that your approach to things like fund documentation, transaction documentation, or is it more along the lines of compliance procedures and stuff like that?
0: Yeah, well, certainly compliance procedures, that's like an easy thing because all of the requirements really apply in the same way to, to all employees, like personal trading, political contributions, friend filings, things like that. I think fund documentation, that raising a, a large commingled fund, there, there is a, a dedicated fundraising team and I think that makes sense and it's pretty well centralized. Um, and so there's somebody on the centralized fundraising team who is dedicated to credit products, oh. um, but he may cover other products as well, but he is responsible for the credit products. That said, there are some new products that they don't cover because they are just, they're so integrated with the business. So some of our separately managed accounts or other more unique credit products get covered by somebody on my team. There's not a clear demarcation for all of this. We, I would say, analyze it case by case and see where it makes sense. If we think that we can get really good execution from the centralized fundraising team, we'd prefer to have them take it over because that's kind of what their function is. But there are some cases where it just doesn't make sense and we think it'd be more efficient for for us to handle it within the business
1: are they always working with external counsel or are you doing more in-house now and stuff like fundraising? Because it sounds like you've got a central fundraising team who can actually execute. Are they essentially replacing?
0: No, they still no. rely heavily on outside counsel. And the only case where we may kind of do it internally would be in the case where we're not using the centralized fundraising team and we're kind of replicating an account that, you know, and it's very similar. So if we can kind of cut and paste it, then we may just do it ourselves. But for the most part, almost exclusively we rely heavily on outside counsel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How many lawyers are in credit then of those hundred?
0: I would say I think
1: twenty. Twenty. No. <laughs> I'm asking you how many people report to you. There's <laughs> I wasn't expecting a longer pause than the previous question. Uh,
0: I'm not really sure exactly. I that's that's my best estimate, twenty. Yeah.
1: Great. Do you have now dedicated transactional lawyers, dedicated fund lawyers within credit? Is that how you're splitting it up? So
0: we don't have dedicated fund lawyers within credit. Um, I would say we've got lawyers who work primarily on transactions. They may also work on some of the fundraising initiatives that are covered by the centralized fundraising team.
1: You mentioned those new products. There's obviously a big push within Blackstone as a whole to get more permanent capital vehicles and also to go after alongside a lot of the other big private equity firms like KKR and Apollo to go after high net worth, quasi retail or actual retail market. Within credit, you've got a BDC that's raising billions, I think four to six billion. I think you've got two BDCs, you've got an ETF fund, senior loan ETF fund, something listed in London, I think as well. All of those products are relatively new. Has that sort of change in the investor base and the type of product shifted your attitude to the risk in your position or the way that you approach the legal role?
0: Not really. I mean, I do think it means that we have to hire different types of people with you know expertise in some of the areas of law that are now implicated by, by these new products, but it hasn't really changed how we, we view our role or how we do our job. We're cognizant of the fact that the risk associated with retail investors is different than it is with you know, large sovereign wealth funds or some of our, you know, pensions who are typically represented by outside counsel and have a lot of experience negotiating side letters and really have a clear vision of what they want. And I do think that in coming up with our retail products, uh, Blackstone is very cognizant of the fact that, you know, it's important to have products that are appropriate for retail investors. So in raising our BDCs, we were very careful about looking at the roadmap that was set by the real estate group of thinking about What are the features of funds that we think are investor-friendly that can make this type of investing acceptable to investors? And, you know, maybe the regulators will look more favorably upon our funds if they really are a little bit more investor-friendly. So I think that was certainly a focus of the firms in structuring these products.
1: Yeah. Obviously, BDCs are very useful for direct lending and loan origination, they have a, a certain tax treatment that removes a lot of the issues with that in the U.S. Do you think that all of your direct lending going forward is going to be within BDC type strategies or are you still doing those the private funds? And-
0: I mean, I don't think we're ever going to rule anything out. My guess is that the BDC will probably be the most important investing vehicle for U.S. direct lending. There'll be other types of lending in other jurisdictions. And, you know, there, there are certainly going to be some important clients who want to have, you know, their own type of fun. And I think we'll continue to be responsive to what our clients ask for.
1: Yeah. So you now have a big suite of products and credit, right? It's, it goes all the way through the capital We structure. have every flavor. <laughs> you do everything now up to and including some equity or quasi-equity I would guess with, you know, especially Well, we've We've
0: always had a mezzanine fund, which is, you know, not equity, but there certainly can be some, you know, equity-like features in in those investments. So, so yeah.
1: You know, and and the way that Special Situations has been invested over the last couple of years, a lot of funds seem to be going deeper into the capital structure of companies and doing like preferred equity and whole co-pick loans and things like that. How do you manage conflicts within a business. I presume you've got still a Chinese war between the credit business and the equity business. But when you get to that level of, of range of product within credit, you've you've then presumably got to think about managing conflicts across those products. How do you deal with that? Because I can't imagine it's easy.
0: No, it's not. A big part of my job is really just thinking about conflicts and making sure that we're properly monitoring them. And a lot of that is, in fact, operationally driven. So. The first step is really just knowing what you have and what is your exposure across the different tranches and thinking about conflicts not just in the you know the obvious, okay, we're at different levels of the capital structure, but what if you've got a hold co and an opco and the underlying opco has traded loans that your CLOs are invested in and what happens in a bankruptcy there. So I think our first step is just making sure we understand where the conflicts are. And we look at them on a regular basis. We look at them at least on a quarterly basis. If something's happening and things are getting a little bit more distressed, then we are probably looking at that situation a little bit more frequently and trying to be proactive so that we can ha- address the conflicts. Because there's a lot of tools that we have in our toolkit to help mitigate conflicts. It might be you know limiting your exposure. Maybe we want to rely on a third party. Maybe we want to go out and seek consent from some sort of oversight body, a fiduciary, an LPAC board, a board on a registered company. If there's something that we want to do that somebody could later question and wonder whether or not we had properly thought about the conflicts of interest, we can separate teams. And even if it's not teams across a true wall, like, uh, you know, an SEC regulated wall, maybe it's just we've have procedures in place that we hold the teams, you need to have these on separate drives, you need to like not talk to each other about these sorts of issues, or you need to not take into account the interests of these other investors. You need to be thinking about these investors, this team is thinking about the other investors. So there's a lot of tools that we do. The first thing we need to do is understand what the conflicts are. So measuring them, looking at them, monitoring them. And then if there's something substantively that we need to do, then we may utilize a transactional conflicts committee to make sure that all of the relevant parties are aware of the conflict and we're thinking
1: carefully about
0: them and documenting it, of course.
1: It's always hard to know what the, because the conflicts only really materialize on the downside, right? So to assess a potential conflict, you have to assume a whole bunch of things that no one really expects to or wants to happen. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) So it's always quite hard to figure out which ones are the, you don't know which ones are going to be the material conflicts until they actually crystallize, right?
0: Well, you can predict where it could be a conflict. We certainly wouldn't be 100% of a tranche of the equity and then 100% of a tranche of the debt and just say, yeah, we're fine because we think Everett, the performance is going to be fine. So going in, we would probably limit our participation in at least one of the tranches. And then if trading prices or valuations start to drop, we may take other acts.
1: It's been a pretty crazy year for fundraising, obviously, but certainly in terms of volume. Is it getting easier or harder? to get these funds over the line and close them
0: you know i think some things become easier and some things become harder i think once you kind of lay out a platform and get it running that platform gets easier and ideally it goes on autopilot but of course there's you know the new product that you don't have a platform for that you've got to figure out and fitting that product into the platform where there's already a bunch of stuff there i think is complicated and some of the products are new and have you know a different regulatory regime or just different reporting requirements and figuring out how to do that I think it's probably challenging more challenging it's it's more challenging to do that than to just rely on you know the stuff that's on autopilot which is one of the great things about having a perpetual product because once you get it rolling ideally you can just get it rolling you don't have to do a new fundraising you know every 3 years
1: yeah absolutely it's a, and there's no negotiation in the documents right unlike a private fund exactly how do you manage external counsel with all these different products? Presumably you're not using the same counsel for each one.
0: We are not using the same counsel, no. We think about who is the right counsel for this product each time a new product comes up. So there are some things, um, if it's a successor of fund, it might be a little bit more obvious which counsel we're going to use. But a lot of things change. I mean, things change from time period to time period. So. We use a lot of different counsel. Our fundraising team has their own set of preferences about which counsel they're going to use. And then there's our you know, other products, which may just have a different operational focus. So having counsel who's more familiar with all of those policies and procedures and our preferences, I think is also useful.
1: Do you run a panel or do you just rely on telling new counsel what's what?
0: I mean, I think we're always evaluating how our counsel are performing. When you say run a panel, you mean sort of like...
1: When you're selecting council, is there sort of a centralized list that maybe John Finley signs off on that these are the acceptable ones, you know, you have to get approval for other ones. We've got fee deals with these ones.
0: Well, I think we're looking at how our council have performed on other products to make a determination of like, if somebody is capacity constrained, we're like, well, they're, they're just too busy right now. So they're not really in the running. And Sometimes we'll try out a new council on a smaller product just to see how it goes. If that works out well and there's a good match, then that might be a firm that we consider in the future.
1: Let's talk about people. It's always struck me about in-house legal teams at private equity and private credit firms in particular. They tend to be quite static. You've been in the role for how long? 15 years or so?
0: So I guess I've been GC since 2010. So yeah, like 12 years.
1: Do you find it easy to keep people motivated when it's obvious that they there's no real way to get promoted unless someone leaves or is assassinated or...
0: hopefully i don't get assassinated
1: heaven forbid
0: (laughs) i think what's great about being in an organization like blackstone is that we're always creating new products new business areas so you know one of the first people who worked with me is now the chief operating officer of the lcs business so i think there's a lot of room for somebody's talented and really adding value. And even if it's not in the legal team or if it's, you know, in a legal group somewhere else, we certainly try and find ways to create a new space. It's one of the areas that I'm very much focused on for particularly my senior people. They, they need to have something that they own and really can just manage their own kind of mini team. I think a place like Blackstone presents a lot of those opportunities. So it's it's one of the things that we think about a lot, making sure that there's a, a a clear career path for, for people.
1: I guess linked to that is the old, I'm saying old chestnut. It's definitely not something that should be treated as an old chestnut in that it's an ongoing issue, but diversity and inclusion and specifically gender diversity. Where do you feel like we are? I mean, don't pick on Blackstone because I don't think it's fair to pick on Blackstone because I think the whole industry has sort of struggled with these kind of issues the whole time. Where do you think we are with that? And specifically, Within legal and compliance teams, there are quite a few senior female GCs. You're obviously a great example of that, but there are plenty more out there, which is fantastic. Is legal and compliance an area where there isn't really this issue? Or is there still this issue? And how can we contribute to making things better, particularly on the gender diversity front?
0: It is a little bit better in legal and compliance. And I would say also in client services, I think that's an area where there's pretty good representation you know, of women. Maybe not as much diverse candidates, but I, I do think it's 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 certainly better in those areas than say on the investment side, which I think Blackstone has acknowledged, and so they're definitely doing a, you know a better job at that. But it's hard, and a lot of it is on the organization to to really try and and make a difference and really reach out and look at different places to find candidates rather than just the old traditional places. And be willing to take a risk on some new and different types of candidates that may just come in and offer something completely different. It's hard to get out of the box that you're in, and I think pulling in and you know taking advice from recruiters or you know organizations that are helping to promote this, and, and really having an open mind to it, I think is important. But it's also a little bit of asking people who may feel a little bit out of their depth because I, I do think that some of the diverse candidates you know, just don't have the same type of confidence and they're only willing to take the position if they think that they're completely qualified. You're never fully qualified to come into some of these positions, and you've got to be willing to take a risk on yourself and, and really, you know, just stretch a bit. I think encouraging those candidates who are, like, maybe waffling a little bit, like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for this, like, really taking a risk on them, encouraging them, and then providing them with the resources to be successful, I think those are some, some things that, that people can you know, think about doing.
1: What other initiatives do you think have worked best, particularly on the gender diversity side? You've got these affinity groups at Blackstone. You've got women at Blackstone, I think, or whatever whatever it's called. Do those things help, or are there other things that we could be doing that help more and... What's helped and not helping your experience?
0: I think it all helps. I think just having awareness about it helps. I think people participating in those programs, even if you don't have like a specific, you know, you can't say, oh, I hired X number of people as a result of having this gender diversity or, you know, diversity initiative. I think just the awareness of it in itself is important and showing that everyone's on board and supportive of moving in that direction, I think is helpful. And it also It helps the people who are already there and who may be inclined to leave because, oh, I don't feel like this is a welcome and, you know, an inclusive place. Like doing those sorts of things changes perspective a little bit in that respect so that people realize like everyone actually wants me to be successful here and they want me to reach out to them. And so attending those types of events, I think, is good in that respect. And just talking about the issues and making them a little bit more part of the regular discussion.
1: I guess slightly linked to that, it's always put in the same section of a website or a brochure, but ESG, um, it's obviously a completely different issue. I think I might be saying Blackstone doesn't have any dedicated ESG products as such. Is that correct?
0: You know, I think there's a spectrum. So there's some that are certainly, you know, focused on on ESG.
1: I think there's an energy fund in credit that's coming out. You don't think you, you sort of market an impact fund or anything like that, but you do have an ESG filter on the investment process. How does that work in credit? Because credit, you don't control the company, you have less influence. The metrics that are used to measure ESG seem a little kind of hazy. How do you get that done in credit and have you been successful and there's still challenges with that?
0: We're spending a lot of time finding ways to measure KPIs and other sorts of, depending on the type of investment, we may find ways to say, well, we're gonna measure these factors on this particular you know, company. Um, and we have had some loans that are have ESG triggers associated with them and change the economics. So that's one obvious way that you can, from a credit perspective, try to influence the ESG initiative. And then otherwise, I, I do think it's really just measuring and reporting and monitoring what's happening.
1: I worry about those loans. There's a lot of them out there. Some people have funds that have warehouse facilities or credit lines that are linked to ESG metrics. Some funds, in turn, make loans to borrowers that are linked to ESG metrics. I find it hard to figure out. I don't think the metrics are ever made public, so I'm not sure if the metrics are consistent across the industry. But the thing I really worry about is that, and this is kind of a technical point, so forgive me, but it puts someone on the wrong side of the ESG trade with the potential to make financial gain if someone fails to meet those metrics, right? So that could be a bank, or it could be, in your case, a Blackstone fund. How do you deal with that obvious economic misalignment of incentives with those loans?
0: And I think you just need to spend time upfront trying to make the criteria as objective as possible. I mean, that may not be fully possible. There's probably always gonna be some element of discretion in there. I I don't know that I've got a a great answer other than, you know, you do your best, you hope that everyone's working in good faith. And I think even if there is um, financial disincentive, I think that there are enough investors that wanna see progress on the ESG front, that there's definitely, maybe not a financial incentive, but there's clearly an incentive for us to say, we had this influence. And as a result of our loan, the the company moved in this direction.
1: I guess it really is the only lever you have. Yeah. It's unfortunate that it's the only lever you have, because it's not the ideal, perfectly aligned set of incentives, right? Um, And there might be investors in the fund behind who say, well, actually, those guys want ESG, but I don't. (laughs) I want to maximize my returns. So there's, there's a potential for conflict there.
0: Yeah. I think you just need to disclose the conflict. People understand that if somebody really has no interest in ESG, then I, I'm not sure they would invest in our fund.
1: Right. The regulatory landscape is changing.
0: It's changing. Yes. <laughs> it's always <laughs> changing.
1: <laughs> well, we've got a new commissioner now under Biden, Guy Gensler, and he's made it quite clear he wants to increase scrutiny of the private markets private funds in particular. I think they came out last week with changes to the form PF. He was saying that they they had scant insight into private equity. And this is after 10 years since Dodd-Frank was introduced, which seems remarkable. How are you preparing for that? And how are you thinking about those potential changes, not just in the US, but also perhaps in Europe too?
0: Yeah, there's definitely a lot that that's happening. At our meeting this morning, we spent a lot of time talking about Europe and you know all of the marketing regulation changes there. So I think I'm lucky to be in an organization like Blackstone, where we certainly have the resources to deal with, with all of these things. I feel badly for some of the smaller organizations. Like It's hard for us, so I, I can't imagine how hard it must be for a firm that doesn't have the ability to manage all of the data that's being required and make sweeping changes to how you approach a lot of these issues that the new regulation is, is, is coming up in. So other than, you know, we're going to create a task force for it and we're going to check to see, you know, what kinds of data we need to change. It's not easy. I don't know that I have a, a good answer to that other than we're going to like harness the troops and make sure that, that we're doing what we need to be doing. I don't know what value is going to come from the additional disclosures in pf but i don't know that i fully appreciate how the existing pf is adding value to the regulators i guess well
1: according to gensler it's not adding any value at all (laughs) because it's sort of a a scant piece of information well and,
0: and it's hard i mean if you look at the information that comes into pf it's and there's so much interpretation that goes into what is reported and then people describe what their assumptions are when they put their information so that what they've provided in Form PF is accurate and makes sense when you take into account all of the assumptions. But how can you aggregate all of that and then come up with something that's meaning that meaningfully describes where the risk is, is seems like it's really hard
1: yeah i totally agree i I don't know unless you're a very very smart regulator with a very highly specialized team who can really analyze everything with full knowledge they basically need to hire a bunch of ex-gcs and compliance people from (laughs) and possibly even you know accountants who worked in private equity funds to make sense of it i would imagine the unintended consequence of that from the regulators perspective is that it almost acts like a barrier to entry to the industry for small as you alluded to i mean from blackstone's perspective we'll bustle up a task force you know another 20 people on it isn't going to move the needle much so let's just do it that's going to be very different i imagine if it had happened say back at gso with five billion aum and exactly and just a couple of you trying to do it right?
0: exactly like if, if i were the one who had to figure all of that out alone 15 years ago that would be really hard i don't i don't know how i would answer your question i probably would have to hire some outside consultants and spend a lot of money and it would be a big impact on the system
1: So you've got your central fundraising team, you've got your transaction team, you've got your task force for the new regulations. So (laughs) what what does that leave you to do? How do you spend your days?
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Anytime, like any issue in all of the many task force and underlying teams, you know, requires additional attention, which it's usually sort of like, you know, there's a fire. and We need to put it out. We need to figure it out. And this is moving quickly. I'll get pulled in to that. I do try and allocate some time to think strategically about, you know, where we're going and, that, and where the business is going and how we can make things more efficient. I spend a lot of my time focusing on processes now, but things come up and emergencies come up and I'm, that ends up taking up more of your day than you ever wanted. So there's a lot of that. And when the fire drills come up, it's good that I was at one point in time, you know, really the only person doing that sort of thing. I think it's it's really useful to have been in the trenches, you know, alone in the trenches for a while when you have to like swoop in and deal with what the wall crossing NDA team needs to figure out at this particular moment in time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There is a danger as a general counsel specifically that you you end up being too out of the weeds and (laughs) you're not able to sweep down enough of it's
0: fun to get in the weeds every once in a while and so i there are definitely several times in the day whenever i am getting into the weeds but it's always a balance to try and be in the weeds but also be high level and strategic
1: how do you deal with training internally for team members In house specifically
0: yeah so i mean at this point in time we've hired enough people and the team has been really great after having had to train people that we've kind of got a playbook now of when people come in for particular sorts of roles we have really good good training materials and we sort of have a system of doing it you know for a transactional attorney who will come in they'll have access to our, our training materials and we'll probably work on one of the more straightforward direct lending type deals usually with a mentor, somebody who's more experienced on the team who will help them through it. That'll happen for a few deals, and then they'll start taking those transactions on their own. You know, there may be a a more complex deal that comes in, somebody more senior works on that. We start advancing that to some of the newer people that come in, and it just slowly happens over time, and then ultimately the information gets absorbed. We also have a weekly meeting where we just go through all of the active transactions and that's a moment where we can all hear what's going on. You can hear about this interesting transaction that's happening. Usually there are a couple public service announcements like, oh guys, just so you know, when X, Y, and Z happens, you need to think about this issue, or these approvals are needed, or the ops teams need to have this information, otherwise X, Y, and Z will happen. So there's a lot of that 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 happens. And that's really educational for me as well. So it allows me to kind of hear everything that's going on and. Here, where the problems are bubbling up and a lot of people can either i can get involved to help solve something or oftentimes the other team members have had an experience on something similar and they're able to information share and and mentor each other even the the mentoring happens not just somebody who's more senior but somebody who's just experienced it before
1: do you find you're hiring more from law firms or from other in-house positions these days
0: law firms definitely. Yeah. yeah
1: there's normally not much movement once someone's into an in-house position. But I I always found that the law firms have a very specialized mindset. Yeah. And that's what has to be trained out of someone when they come in-house.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely an adjustment moving from a law firm to in-house. I definitely value the training that happens at a law firm. I don't think you can replicate that sort of yeah. training at, at an in-house job. Um, you just can't get the volume of work and the understanding of the mechanics of a transaction and how a deal works. It's
1: how long did you spend yourself?
0: Six years. Well, yeah, I was six years at Latham, and then I was part-time at DLA Piper for a while, so.
1: Yeah, I, I made the jump pretty early, so I guess I didn't get all the technical. I was like a year and a half of qualified.
0: Yeah, I don't, <laughs> you know, I think if you're like three or four years into a law firm, I think you've gotten a pretty good experience, and I feel confident that we can build on that, but I think no experience whatsoever, that's just really hard.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, going straight into an in-house role is, is tough, I think. Yeah, I Almost impossible. So, we are unfortunately out of time, but thanks so much for joining me, Marisa.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. It's been great. All right.
1: Goodbye. Enjoy the rest of your day.
0: Thanks. You too, Richard. Bye.